happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 209 for February 17th, 2021. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, Montana State Virtual School, located in the fabulous University of Montana campus right here in snowy and cold Missoula, Montana. But tonight, I can't claim to be the cold capital of this podcast because I'm talking to Dr. West Fryer. Good evening, West Fryer. How cold is it tonight in your neck of the woods? It's a heat wave. It's 18 degrees. We got up to 21, <laughs> but we were down below zero, which has, I don't know that that's ever happened since we've lived here since 2006. And we have a foot of snow on the ground that has been dumped in a couple couple stacks. But I am the technology innovation and what am I? The technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School, teaching fifth and sixth grade media literacy. And we have actually had a bit of a midwinter break, um, but we had a a uh, remote day prior to that, and then uh, snow day, you know, Tuesday, and today's remote, and they just emailed that we're going to be remote again. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy, but it's a great, a great time to not live in Texas as we may talk about a little bit in the show. Although there's, yeah, there's some technology connections to that as well as politics. What are, what are we going to do, uh, here tonight, Jason? What are we going to be talking about? Well, we might actually talk about the weather a couple of times here tonight, but otherwise we will talk about technology. And it's many splendors, especially shot through the prism of education. And every week we take articles ripped from the headlines that are related to tech and talk about what impact they may have on K-12 education. Tonight's topics will include a lot of Google news, some privacy and security news, Apple news, some connectivity information, the broad category that we talk about called the tech correction, which is the uh, seemingly interesting pullback away from technologies, especially things like social media, some information about podcasting, a little Snowmageddon update, and of course, we will end tonight's episode with our Geeks of the Week. Dr. Fryer, where would you like to start this evening? Oh, gosh. Do you want to uh, jump in? Let's jump into the Google News. The Google News is probably going to take take a lot. So I'll, I'll start just by saying that today was uh, the Learning with Google event, which I think we had mentioned on the show a few weeks ago and is ongoing for different regions. I got to watch about the first 30 minutes of it. Um, my big takeaway, and I actually, maybe that'll be my geek of the week, um, but I, I to it now, but anyway, I'll put it in the links. I, I made a little sketch note of the first 30 minutes of this. And uh, my big takeaway is that, Hey, Google is, is cashing in on the education market. Um, I have mentioned, we've talked before on the show kind of about a sense of this, like, hmm, there seems to be a, a seismic change uh, in the educational approach of Google. Um, the little sketch note that I made, which I'll drop here into the live chat, um, I uh, I broke down or just kind of tried to capture the the level. So Google is still going to be offering a, a free tier of what they're now calling Google Workspace for Education. Um, and, and they're, you know, proud to continue offering that for free. But they're going to be, I think, starting in April, three paid Google upgrade options. And they're not really all building on each other. The first one's this EDU standard, which I would say, you know, um, is... Uh, you know, going to be essential for, for, for security and investigation. So we've had that this last year and our IT department I know has benefited from that. It's that's $3 per student per year. Then there's a teaching and learning upgrade, 
which we've, I think it's all been in one, one tier right now that it's like enterprise. I'm not exactly sure. Cause I'm not, you know, signing off on any bills anymore in our school. Uh, but the teaching and learning upgrade has like recorded Google meets, uh, breakout rooms, um, the unlimited originality reports. And then that's $4 per license per month, uh, which I think that may be by teacher. And then education plus is $5 per student per year. And that's really the EDU standard. But then you get this like larger live stream quota, institutional drive, um, search. And um, this is the big one though, that I'm interested in sync to Google classroom to its SIS. And I know you put into the chat and I'll drop it in an article about Google classroom updates. And maybe you can say a little more about that, but the fact that they are, really moving to be an LMS. And the number that was so big from this today was a year ago, they had 40 million worldwide users of G Suite for education. Today, that number is 150 million teachers and students. And then someone else said 170 million. I don't know if that included enterprise users or or what that 170, but like that's a huge, huge jump. So still love the Googles, you know, fantastic. But Wow, we've really, I think, seen a fundamental pivot here in, you know, time to to cash in on the educational market. Do you think, uh, am I right or wrong, sir? Uh, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I had only heard some of of the, the, the announcements as they had been pinged to me on Twitter today. Shout out to Simon Miller, my friend um, in in uh, Idaho, uh, upstate Idaho, as, as he likes to call it, uh, who told me about the changes to uh, Google Classroom we'll talk about in a moment. But um, I will tell you that as the more I'm getting into this, the more I've read about this, this is going to be a pretty big change to the way I do uh, business in regards to um, uh, Google uh, services. And the free fundamentals is a, is, is a perfectly good service um, uh, uh, that, that we will likely probably stick with, but um, we, um, the $3 per student per year does add a relatively significant cost. It's probably 10, 12, $15,000 a year, but there are some, you know, you were right that the security piece I think is, a um, is, is kind of a big deal. And so we will take a really close look at this, um, um, uh, to, to see, you know, kind of what direction we want to go into. I think part of the complication for me personally is that, you know, our student body is not a full-time student body. All the students we serve in context of, of my day job at Montana State Virtual School are part-time with us and maintain a, a, a separate local uh, email account. And we're going to have to talk about, you know, the merits of, of having those external tools available to students and what that ultimately means for us. But, um, you know, I am super interested in you know, what, uh, you know, what will be compromised in the free version in order to, you know, offer these new paid tiers. But we've talked about and, and, and kind of guesstimated in the past six months or so, especially with the rebranding towards, uh, towards workspace. And they started to create new tiers that you could buy into that at some point the free version would become less and less and less functional until it, in essence, uh, uh, you know, becomes almost mandatory for a real implementation of the program to then buy up into one of the higher tiers. And I just noticed that as an example of this, um, they, in, in, I think with everyone, they're going to start, uh, 
uh, pulling back storage, um, that they're going to go from, uh, well, this is quoting their blog. Uh, Google has traditionally offered unlimited storage to qualifying schools and universities for free. However, as we've grown to serve more schools and universities each year, storage consumption has also rapidly accelerated. Storage is not being consumed equitably uh, across or, nor within institutions. School leaders often don't have the tools they need to manage this and to support schools. They're going to put new pool, uh, pooled storage models and give more um, tools um, uh, uh, to uh, uh, IT folks to help manage that storage. Which, which article is, uh, are you reading that one from? Do you uh, remember this, the title of that one? Yeah, it's called uh, Google Workplace. No, More Options for Learning with Google Workspace, Workspace for Education. This is from the Google blog. Okay. It, do we have that one on our list? It's, I think it's the top one on there. And, um, and if it's not, I will okay. throw the link in. But okay. the thing that's interesting about that is that, and I'll give you an example of this. Currently I have 17 terabytes. I myself have 17 terabytes stored, um, in my work account. And it's because all of our archived classes we've maintained, um, on, um, you know, uh, off-prem in, 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 in Google Cloud storage. Now we've oversaved that over time. Time just because we were leery about getting rid of information and data uh, as we've, you know, tried to, to, to figure out you know, where we're going with things. But even though I am obviously a massive size user here and that that's, you know, going to be extraordinary, we don't even come close to using um, the amount of storage they're going to allow pooled for each individual institution. And they, uh, the new storage model provides schools and universities with a hundred terabyte of pooled cloud storage. And so even though I could probably scale back easily to, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, maybe a terabyte or, or lower of, of, of storage, uh, you know, even with my account using 17, we're not even going to come close to 100 terabytes. And so I, I think that's something to keep in mind over time as well. Well, here's something I would just want to throw out there, two couple of thoughts. Number one, like, could any other company handle a jump of what we're talking about in the last year? I mean, from 40 million to 150 million users. We talked on the show a few weeks ago about this like little blip in classroom uh, that, that went down just, just, a, just not for very long, but you know, that's not one of the core G suite applications, which I think we commented. That's interesting because for schools at this point, you know um, it, it certainly would be considered a, a core application. Um, that article that we've got at the top is uh, called a peek at what's next for Google classroom. And, you know, one of the things they talk about, like this is, this is paragraph three. This is hugely important because I, you know, at the, the very first time that I heard Google rolling out classroom, ISTE, other kinds of things, like they explicitly said, this is not a learning management system. This is not an LMS. Yep. So paragraph three, quote, while we didn't set out to create an LMS, Classroom is committed to meeting the evolving needs of schools. We'll continue to put the people who use our products first and listen to your feedback to address your top priorities. And we'll always make sure Classroom retains its simplicity and ease of use that's made it so helpful to teachers, students, and school leaders around the world. Now, what's not explicitly said there is that a ton of those 150 million users of Google education, whether we're going to call it workspace or G suite or whatever, um, are using classroom as their LMS. Uh, I would love to see those statistics that this, this, um, 
entire like hour and a half, I think, will be available on demand in two days on February 19th. And I'm going to go ahead and, and watch the rest of it. I just got to catch the first 30 minutes. But, uh, uh, you know, Google, Google Classroom is not an LMS. It's not a full LMS, but, you know, it is what a lot of schools have used. Tomorrow, I'm actually giving a webinar. Uh, we had uh, like 420 people registered as of this morning to teachers in Albania and that the professional development group that I'm uh, doing this webinar for is a free webinar. Um, they said that WhatsApp groups have been the main way they've been staying in contact with their students because they don't have G Suite and, and Google accounts and LMSs and things like that. So, you know, when you think about the global reach of, of Google, the number of users, I will say that I think it's just astounding and wonderful that Google has met the demand. And like, we really didn't see a blip in service over the pandemic and, and all of that. The other observation I'll have, and I don't have his name, is that in the presentation today, I think he may have been the fourth speaker. He was one of the original people in charge of search at Google. And when you talk about search, like that is the core, right? That is, that's what, you know, um, Google, you know, it started it with their bread and butter and, and of course advertising got added and, but you know, search is the, is the core of the business. And so the fact that the, this per, this gentleman whose name I need to get in, in anyway, I just, I don't know that I had heard of him before, but he's now leading uh, Sundar Pichai, who's the CEO of Google, you know, did the kickoff initial talk and then, you know, introduced and, and this, um, early Googler is now leading the, Google workspaces for EDU, which is going to take a while to, to start having that roll off your tongue. But like that is it anyway, it's a significant commitment and it's a, it's a pivoted, shifted commitment. But, uh, you know, we've said before companies that have to turn a profit, you know, I mean, if, if you are a company, you know, you have to find a way to keep the lights on. I'm not saying Google is at risk of having the lights go off, but it would be interesting to know what their outlay, and I'm sure this is what happened. I don't know. This is just Wes's guess. But you increase users from 40 million to 150 million. And when you're talking about Jason, all that storage, and they're saying it's not equitable. I mean, think about it. I'm, I'm recording every single meet meeting that I'm having, but we haven't actually been remote that much. You know, there are schools that have been remote the entire year. And you think about, the amount of storage, et cetera. Um, I think Google just had to take a very hard look at what they were doing and where the money was flowing, and they have made some big adjustments. Yep, absolutely. And, and the other thing I would also note, too, is that um, there there has been a subtle change over time as companies that were essentially advertising companies, right? Like, and that's, that's what the, we sometimes misunderstand about Google. It is a search company to start with, but the way they made their money was through advertising, right? And uh, advertising, it's not going away, but it's certainly sparking more criticism than almost any other revenue generation strategy that a dot com, uh, to use, I guess, a more data term might, might, uh, utilize. And as data is going to become less valuable, as more people are cognizant about their private the debate that we've been talking about in the last several weeks on the podcast about what Apple is doing now to highlight when particular apps are asking for more information than you're comfortable giving, that's going to mean that, that those revenue sources are going to dry up at some point. And the only option is then, then to charge for the service. Um, this has been happening on the personal side already. It's what sparked this discussion on here on, on our podcast about this. But it's just happening in education as it is uh, as much as everywhere else. 
And, you know, uh, to give it just a really a slim example of this, because I, I was curious and I don't know, I can't remember how long ago this was, a year and a half ago. Uh, it was Christmas time. I was, I was at my parents' house in Great Falls. Um, I tend to do things like, you know, surf random stuff when I'm uh, on holiday that, that's not education related. And I knew there had been a trend of people selling unlimited Google accounts, um, on eBay for a dollar, six dollars, ten dollars. And I bought one because I was just curious to find out what that was. Right. And so I think I spent a dollar at the time. And I was offered uh, an account from the Community College of San Francisco. I was given a username and password. I uh, changed the password right away to make sure it wasn't hacked. And I never used it for anything. It was a dollar I spent to amuse myself for an hour. Um, and it lasted about eight months before it was shut down. But I had access to the entire free education account from the Community College for San Francisco. The reason why I'm mentioning that is because the, I had seen references to that online, the people were backing up terabytes of local information. Um, if they were smart, they were um, they were also encrypting that before it went off. Because you know, as a as a G Suite administrator, you would know that you have access to anything in anyone's Google Drive. The, 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 that's part of the e discovery process is that you'd have access to those pieces. But um, you know, I know for a fact that people were data hoarding on free accounts that you know some uh, you know part time sub administrator for for the for for uh, various institutions were doing. Um, I would check in with the account every month or two to see it was still going. It, it lasted about eight or nine months before it was shut down. But you can even today go on to Google to eBay and find, uh, you know, a free, you know, accounts that people are selling, uh, yeah. you know, and that's from not the dark shipping. web. eBay is no. not the dark web. So. No, it's not. Yeah. And I'm sure there are plenty of interesting things in the dark web, but it's no doubt in my mind that people were abusing that storage. Um, it reminds me that a couple of years back when OneDrive first uh, launched, OneDrive was an unlimited drive service to start with it, it for, I think, almost three or four months until people started you know, putting extraordinary amounts of backup information on their OneDrives. In fact, if I remember correctly, even uh, uh, Evernote uh, in, in the way that it offered unlimited storage at one point for, for relatively inexpensive paid accounts, people figured out how to hoard data on those accounts before they they got rid of the unlimited uh, uh, posture. So I appreciate the fact that Google's waited this long to start limiting that unlimited uh, storage space, right? But I guess I'm definitely not surprised uh, that this has happened. Now, I understand you're a little excited about the rich text features, which we can talk about. The, the, the paragraph I uh, will read and I'm most interested in says, subtitles, set up classes in advance with SIS roster syncing coming later this uh, year provisioning classes for an entire school system can be time consuming later this year. Admins using education plus will be able to create classes and populate and sync rosters directly to classroom from their student information system. And that is a very specific thing that I'm going to be interested to find out if our current SIS vendor, which is not one that just, you know, millions of, of you know, anyway, whatever thousands, I, I don't know that maybe they do have thousands of customers. I don't know how many customers, but it's not like one of the main ones that public K-12 are using. And I'm really going to be interested in whether or not they're going to do that. Cause one of the, one of the challenges, um, you know, is that we don't, we're ours, our student information system has, has a very underpowered LMS that was basically bought from another country company in 2015 and hasn't been updated a whole lot. Google classroom offers a lot better features and I've tried to just, you know, not use Google Classroom for for a trimester, and it just it wasn't pretty. 
But the double entry is a pain and synchronization with SIS is a, is a big deal. So does the, the rich text aspects of their announcement excite you or interest you? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I love Google Classroom for its simplicity as a, as a, as a, uh, an individual that does work in distance learning. I also know it's not an LMS, although we have teachers occasionally try to pitch to us that they would prefer to teach the class that way, but it is missing some key features. And even though with, even with today's announcements, it's not quite as full featured of a learning management system as Moodle or Canvas or Brightspace or, um, uh, 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 Blackboard or, or even there's, you know, dozens of, of B and C tier LMSs that are used fairly widely in both corporate and educational implementations, but it, it's getting closer. Um, my context of using Google Classroom is that we use it as a, a teacher uh, system at, at MTDA for what we call accountability and checklists. Um, a lot of what we do to put out distance learning classes requires some technical setup that we rely on our teachers to do. And that technical setup piece um, is, uh, you know, it's, it, a checklist is the best way to do that. Um, I, there's a great book called The Checklist Manifesto that uh, I'm a big believer in. And it talks about the key when you want consistency over a large number of people, the best way to do that is a checklist. Checklist is also a great assessment strategy too for the exact same reason, but we use checklist as part of our accountability strategy uh, at, at the Digital Academy. And I, I'll admit, I like underlining, highlighting. I'm a big fan of um, the notion of kind of marking up a text to draw the eye to the most important things, knowing that a lot of busy people will scan things and maybe miss things if they're not reading for detail. So that's something that's super exciting to me. Um, there's also, uh, obviously, or, uh, connecting to an SIS is, is, a, is a great step forward. It makes that a more legitimate uh, learning management system option. And then I'm not entirely sure if I understand this one, but they're, uh, they, they announced it as use your favorite ed tech tools and content within classroom coming later this year. I think that, uh, you have to have the education plus or teaching and learning upgrades. You have to do a paid tier for this, but Google uh, or classroom add-ons will allow teachers to choose their favorite ed tech tools and content from a marketplace and assign it to students directly in classroom, all without extra logins, which seems to me that kind of like LTI integration, the IMS Global LTI standard, which allows for uh, uh, an LMS to feed into uh, your, uh, I'm sorry, allow content companies to feed information into your learning management system with a single sign-on piece. Um, it's a, a way we access a lot of our vendors' content at the Digital Academy. It might be close to that. I hope it's an, a more open system, though, and that the company doesn't have to um, just, you know, get something through a Google marketplace. I would prefer if they had straight up LTI integration, that would actually make it a very interesting, uh, prospect to me. Um, but you know, interesting stuff. And that says tools and content, you know, we continue to use, and I would foresee us continuing to use Seesaw with our, uh, elementary as well as our primary, you know, kiddos and teachers. Uh, and so, that one of the best things about Seesaw is 
uh, being able to have access to this library of activities that teachers have created and shared, not only within your school or district, but it can be throughout the entire Seesaw community. And I think they've actually gotten a little more restrictive. It used to be that anybody could, you know, submit things globally um, and the content and the amount. I, in fact, Seesaw is another company like it'd be great to know the statistics because they have a free free tier as well. You know, and I'm sure that explosion during the pandemic is just I've heard a few things. It's It's been incredible. But anyway, that ability to have teacher created materials. And this isn't teachers pay teachers, by the way. You know, this is free stuff that teachers are giving. But this marketplace does sound a lot like, you know, not only apps that you can plug in that are going to give you quizzing, like teaching Spanish, as I did the first semester, you know, using Quizlet, using, um, you know, Kahoot, using other kinds of platforms that help with vocabulary and things like that, being able to plug that in natively sounds more LMS-y. But the content piece, thinking about curriculum, I know that PBS, and they were pushing this a, a bit right when we started the, um, you know, lockdown and, and the emergency remote learning, um, has these modules that you can just immediately, you know, grab and bring into classroom. So it'll be interesting to see if that's what they're going to offer up to uh, textbook publishers and also how that, you know, might interface with open source materials and things like that as far as being able to grab an open source algebra, you know, curriculum and textbook yeah. or something like that and then have modules and things like that that you can that you can bring right in. So it's just, there's a lot of important um, announcements here. I think the good news overall is that Google has uh, risen to the challenge. As you point out, I do agree that that there's, you know, been abuses of the system and and they've for for different reasons that we may not fully know, but surely it has a lot to do with money uh, and probably just the need to have some limits on what they were giving away. Um, they are having to change some of the rules of the game. And I'm sure that's going to probably upset some people. But the fact that you can still have this free tier is, is a good thing, right? If they were going away from that, that would be a a pretty big fundamental departure from kind of the promise of what they've had. These additional things, uh, maybe not the storage piece, because that's kind of been part of the deal as well, but certainly the like recording with Mead and, you know, these new add-ons of, uh, of the assignment. It's not called assignment checker, but anyway, there's a lot of additional things that, that they have uh, put on here. And I think it's great to see Google dynamically responding to, um, the needs and, and just and meeting the needs, right? I mean, Google Classroom didn't go down during the pandemic, during a year where they saw more than exponential growth going from 40 million to 150 million is not just doubling. Uh, that's actually more than tripling. That is crazy, crazy. So thankfully, there's a lot of smart folks. And they got a lot of servers at Google to handle that demand. But obviously, they needed to make some changes. And it's going to be Important, um, but I think also good to, to track these changes and, and improvements to service. But we're going to have to start paying. I think that's going to be you're, you're probably not going to want to remain on the free tier as as an enterprise user of yeah. these tools. Yeah. I don't think you're, you're going to want to. Absolutely. And then the other thing I would also note is that credit related to this, that uh, there, and I can't remember what, oh, IDC uh, released these market statistics, but a nine to five Mac reported today as well that uh, a Mac uh, market share did increase 
Uh, it grew significantly last year, going from 5.8% to 7.7%. That's a huge increase uh, uh, for max market share in sales, but uh, it is paled in comparison uh, to the growth increase by Chromebooks. Uh, the Chromebook uh, sales last year, they saw a 400% increase in Chromebook sales, seeing the market share rise from 5.3% quarter one to a massive 14.4% by the end of the year, close twice the share of Mac OS. And the reason why that's interesting, uh, it's not only, you know, was the accelerated, obviously, adoption of Chromebooks, and obviously schools are going to be the primary reason why that was the case. But additionally, it's the first time that Windows has dropped below 80% in um, uh, decades, really. Um, because uh, Apple's really never had that huge of a share um, uh, uh, going back uh, to, to their even their uh, early competitive days against Microsoft. More importantly, I would also note that it does increase the uh, uh, wisdom of the decision for Microsoft to move away from, uh, you know, selling operating systems and uh, uh, hardware and more towards platforms that are usable across, you know, really all of the genres of these particular um, uh, 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 platforms is what I'm trying to say. So, hey, well, let's segue to a security article, which I have uh, I've just scanned here that you put in, but has huge implications for us, and that is about LastPass. So uh, as listeners of the podcast will know, Jason and I are enthusiastic advocates of password managers in various flavors. To include LastPass as well as 1Password, um, there's other choices, of course. We have been recommending but not requiring our teachers to use a password manager, and we've recommended LastPass. Well, guess what? LastPass, uh, starting March 16th, is no longer going to give you free access to your passwords on both your computer and your device, your, your uh, smartphone or your tablet. Man, that is a huge bummer. And again, it points to a company, um, and whether this was something that they strategized all along, I mean, we'll probably never know. But, you know, reaching a point where I guess they can't continue to provide that level of free service. Um, and <laughs> frankly, that very well could convince me, uh, or not just convince, it may twist my arm. I have hundreds of passwords in, in LastPass because that was where I chose to put all of my school passwords. And I, I don't know, I'll have to think about this, but I, if I was going to choose a platform, I'm going to choose the, the laptop. Um, it's interesting because with continuity, if you have that turned on with your Mac, you know, you can copy something logged into the same Apple ID on your iPhone and your Mac and boom, it can be right over on your Mac. So that's not going to help going to a different computer. I don't have that happen that often. I mean, I'm in the, in the habit now of using 30-character random passwords. And so those are kind of painful to type when you have to. And I've had to do that a few times. But uh, I'm thinking with LastPass, I'm probably just going to say, give me the computer version. I won't need the computer, the uh, iOS or, or tablet version. And then the, on the rare occasion when I need to do that, you know, I could use the continuity feature of my computer and phone and just, you know, move the password that way. So your thoughts about this one? Well, I started paying for LastPass. I bought it on a Black Friday deal um, uh, in November of, of 2020. And part of it's because I've been recommending it for 10 years. And I, I literally have 
um, years and years and years and years of password cruft. Uh, in fact, I the other day noticed uh, I went uh, I do a every two or three month review of my LastPass list, um, and noticed that there were some sites that had been down like hadn't been around for four or five years that I'd still maintain passwords for. Um, the reason why uh, I moved towards the paid tier was because I've been lately trying to pay for services that, that I find value to in part because I want them to continue to exist, uh, in the long term. But I think it's related to the Google discussion. I, I think the free internet might be at risk here. And, um, I think that it, we're going to more and more be challenged to find a way to provide financial support for tools that we use because I don't think advertising is going to be enough. Now, LastPass didn't have an advertising piece. I think it was a freemium model and they hoped you would upgrade. And for the record, I was a power user of LastPass and it took me until, um, well, uh, you know, November, so years and years after starting to use the tool to pay for it. So the freemium model only worked in a minor way for me, but I think that there is definitely some merit into finding which tools work best for you and then, you know, utilizing it, right? Uh, uh, in, in its most, uh, it's, it's, it's most powerful way and then paying for that service. There's another uh, security article you put down there uh, from ZDNet. Um, do you want to pick that one up? Yeah, this one uh, is is super interesting. Um, so I had not heard uh, of this happening until I saw the ZDNet article on it. But um, uh, a couple weeks back, uh, the cybersecurity firm Malwarebytes, uh, which is a very popular piece of software for getting malware off of a, a, a desktop PC, uh, had noted that a... Um, uh, an Android app uh, called Barcode Scanner, right? Which, you know, it sounds like a, an interesting utility app. Um, uh, the Barcode Scanner had been purchased by another company, right? So the app literally changed hands from one company to another. And then the new company apparently purchased that for the purpose of pushing malware onto computers. So, or I'm sorry, onto your, your, your Android devices. And the idea here is, is that they purchased it. It changed hands. They added in something called, um, Trojan hidden ads, uh, is the name of the, what, what, uh, ZDNet called nuisanceware, right? And then it started popping up ads at random times on, on your phone. And I, I've actually seen something like this at play before. Um, I, a couple of years back, uh, had a family member, uh, ask me for some assistance on their Android phone. And I discovered that this particular individual and, uh, full disclosure, it's my dad. Uh, he had downloaded a number of solitaire games, um, on his phone. And one of them had some 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 uh, malware on it that was well it's this nuisanceware, and so random ads would pop up at strange times, middle phone calls, surfing on Chrome, and you know we were able to get rid of it. It was no big deal. But in this particular case, none of the 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 users of this app certainly were were were. Um, uh, a wanting malware. They also, the original app that they had been using had worked uh, for fine or uh, worked fine for years. Obviously the company, um, uh, you know, had no comment about this, but the, the point that is, is super interesting is that this could be a new strategy, right? For getting bad stuff on your phone. Like it's, it, you don't have to, to you yourself try to get an app into the play store that's got malware in it, especially since I would assume that that's one of the things they check for, for new app developers is to make sure your app's in the up and up. You can just buy an app with an existing user base 
and then push a piece of malware into it as part of an update. So pretty gross. Wow. All right. What category would you like to tackle next, sir? Well, let me do one more that's kind of in this na- neighborhood. Uh, this is also from today's ZDNet. Uh, tracker pixels and email are now an endemic privacy concern. And this, uh, this article, um, was from, uh, Charlie Osborne. And it talks about something that I guess everyone knew. I thought everyone knew about, but perhaps you didn't. And there's a thing called, um, uh, well, they're sometimes called tracker pixels. And the reason why they're called a pixel is because they're oftentimes an image. They could be as small as one pixel by one pixel. And they oftentimes are, are, are a light colored, white or beige or gray so that you wouldn't notice it anyways. But what happens when there is a, a, a really any kind of tracking anything in an email is that when you open up the email, it's going to display that pixel uh, to you, right? But they have to get that from a server somewhere, right? So the idea is, is that the, your email client pings the server and says, please send me this image, right? But when it does that, it can tell an awful lot about you, including how you're opening the email, whether you're on a phone or a desktop, whether you're on iOS or Android, whether you're a Mac or PC, you're opening on a Firefox, Chrome or Edge, um, or you're one of the three people still using Opera, whatever you decide to do, um, it, it will it will track all that information about you. It will also likely track a... Um, uh, uh, your IP address, right? Because, you know, your computer, where you're sitting at, has to ask for this information. If you're not using a VPN, it would be able to then tell, um, you know, uh, where you're located at. And in the case of if I'm at work, for example, you know, they could narrow it down to the University of Montana campus because the University of Montana has its own IP address of which all of its traffic is broadcast. Um, and a lot of people are apparently kind of sketched out by this because, um, uh, it, it does tell a lot about you. Um, but the reason why I'm mentioning this is because I guess I thought this was broader knowledge because going back 25 years, one of the reasons, well, 25 years, probably a little much, 20 years. One of the reasons why, um, you know, spam email is such a problem is because if you open up a spam message and there's an image in it, they could use essentially tracking on that image to say that you opened the email, which means they know it's legitimate email email address. You also probably note that in a lot of email systems, I see this more in Outlook than I do in Gmail, but I know it happens in Gmail. Oftentimes they will block images from being shown on an email it thinks is sketchy because they want you to um, uh, not give away personal information like your physical location, IP address wise, uh, through that pixel. But I guess I, I mean, there are down, there are email clients you can download with signature uh, software in it that add a tracking pixel so you can tell the number of times an email was opened. Uh, if you use any variety of marketing email software, MailChimp, Constant Contact, uh, Vertical Response, it has tracking uh, 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 in it. Um, I use it all the time. You know, we, we use uh, uh, that data all the time when we send out facilitator emails as part of my program to help track when perhaps a, a, a you know, an announcement email is getting redirected regularly to spam or, or maybe it's not making it to an end user at all because we use the tracking pixels to find out when emails were open to help people get access to messaging that they need. Um, so I guess I'd start with Wes. Uh, you're a pretty tech savvy guy. 
Uh, did you know about the existence of these tracking pixels? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the first time I saw Google say, you know, click here to display images, I was like, what is that? You know, yeah. why would they do that? And then became aware of uh, of that tracking. So it is, it's cool when you use MailChimp or, or some of these programs to, oh, look, how many people open my message? But, you know, it's like some other things with statistics, podcast statistics, maybe. I don't know if that's the right analogy or metaphor, but, you know, it's... <laughs> There's a lot of people who aren't going to be, you know, who may be looking, but they they are blocking the the tracking pixels. But yeah, I knew that this was an issue, and this yeah. gets to what we've talked about, you know, frequently on the show very recently. That you know, the next stable version of Google Chrome is going to block third party trackers. Apple has taken pretty aggressive moves to try and you know limit the surveillance capitalism, um, at least the at least the opacity and the concealment of here's all the ways we're using your data. Here's all the ways we're tracking you. They're trying to make there there to be a little bit greater visibility and transparency with that in terms of what they're requiring developers to do for their apps. So yes, I was aware that this was an issue and it's going to be interesting. It's not the right word, but maybe it is to see how the market moves with this, right? Because marketing and data collection, these are huge, huge businesses. And so the push, and we can call this the tech correction, um, you know, the the, uh, Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, is, you know, encouraging, trying to push society to limit the broad, invasive, powers and, and and abilities that tech companies have for a variety of reasons uh, to be able to track our every move and then try to nudge us or, ha- or have it's pay to nudge, you know, it, it's run your ad to either, at, you know, try to get somebody to buy a product or, you know, feel a certain way about a, a political candidate or whatever, you know, some, some kind of an issue. So um, I don't, does, does, does the article suggest, a solution to this or, or what's other than like the blocking images within your email, is there anything else we can really do about it? Well, I, I think, uh, um, I think part of the, the idea here is, is just awareness, but the article also talks about how, um, there are, there's increasing regulation. And of course, the place to do this is Europe, right? Uh, the GDPR, uh, which is a, a very wide reaching privacy, uh, or set of privacy standards in Europe. Um, G- the GDPR demands that organizations tell recipients of email that, uh, that there is tracking pixels, uh, encased in the email itself. And part of the problem is that, um, uh, you know, like if you open the email, it's already too late, right? Like, you know, that, that may be part of it. I could see a scenario where we may get to a point where you might even have to opt into some things to even open an email. I mean, that seems a little far-fetched, but, um, you know, if, if this is of concern of people, I could certainly understand where we might start developing some standards around it. But I guess the one thing I would say is that for better or for worse, email has had a lot of longevity over time, right? It's the one social networking tool that, uh, you know, uh, it, it does mimic traditional 
messaging, right? Like it, it, it has a, an analog in that, you know, we used to mail things to each other, um, uh, or stick in them in inner office mail. Email has largely replaced that, but it also, uh, hasn't been accused of, of some of the, the terrible things that social media has been accused of, right? So I, I think, it, you know, there's probably going to be a middle ground there too. I guess the larger point that I keep thinking about is that there's a reckoning a coming. Um, and that a lot of these technologies that allow for things like targeted marketing just may not be a reality um, in, in the relatively near future. Or they, they need to be rolled back, so yep. in some ways. All right, well, let's, uh, let's talk tech correction. Let's talk Australia a little bit. Uh, you had placed several articles into our uh, show notes, which, by the way, you can access at edtechsr.com slash links. And you uh, got several that I had seen. So this first one is the Verge article. Facebook will block Australian users and publishers from sharing news links in response to a new bill. We have talked on the show the last couple weeks, I think, uh, more about Google and this threat. But from what I understand, the news publishers are mad that they've lost all kinds of revenue. And they think that companies like Google with search and uh, the AMP thing, you know, way that that Google will, you know, take off some ads and give you a, a cleaner Googleized version of, of an article. And then Facebook also, uh, the, the legislature has been proposing to make these companies pay. Evidently, there was some kind of a settlement that Google had, but Facebook, um, there was another article I think I read that talked about has taken the nuclear option. And so they are now actually blocking news articles from Facebook from being right. shared on the number one social media platform in the world, um, certainly for adults. So your thoughts? Well, Google initially said they, they thought they might need to pull out of Australia. And the, the whole notion behind that is really mind-blowing, right? What does it look like for uh, Google to pull out of a country the size of, of Australia, right? Major... And of course, um, uh, one of my, uh, Android devices just thought I was talking to it. Massive notion of, 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 of doing that. I, I, I can't wrap my brain around it, right? Of what that might look like, but they have subsequently started negotiating some kind of financial a- arrangement with, uh, news organizations in Australia. But Facebook has decided that they just won't allow posting at all. And there's actually a matrix about what this looks like. Uh, but I, as an international user t- tonight, try to post an Australian broadcasting article on my Facebook feed uh, just to see what it did, right? And it came up with an error message. So this is already implemented, right? So I'm an American. I'm trying to post an Australian news story. And it said something went wrong. We're working on it or getting it fixed um, as soon as we can. So it's literally... So it's not just that you is an Australian user, if you were physic- geographically and physically in Australia, would have it blocked. Even here as a United States user of Facebook, because that's an Australian news link, it's blocked. Yes. Yep. Wow. And I have no Australian friends, um, on, on, on Facebook, uh, at least not that I know of. I used to have a friend that lived in New Zealand, but, uh, as an international user, um, you can't post and, um, even Australian publishers can't post, uh, their own wares, um, on Facebook because they're just said we're done, right? Like we can't participate in this. And, you know, um, Wes, you, you talked me into a couple weeks back why this is a big deal for, for Google from the standpoint of if they're pulling information off the website and taking the ads off of it. 
that does diminish an economic uh, 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 possibility for that article, right? To help fund the journalism that does that. But Facebook, I mean, you know, they're, you know, they're just linking to it, right? Like, and I, and, and, and Facebook was, was one of the, the so-called offenders that the government was really going after. But I would argue that for better or for worse, I would imagine that Facebook drives an awful lot of traffic to news websites, especially if you're posting just links and not huge parts of articles. And so, so I think this is, I, I think it's short-sighted, right? The Google one's a little different for me, but from a Facebook standpoint, preventing discovery via those links, I think is is pretty strange. And so, again, I don't, um, I'm still trying to, to wrap my brain around what the end game looks like globally with this stuff. But it's super interesting so far that uh, Facebook Australia is just like, we're not going to deal with it. You can't post news links, sorry. Shout out to Chris Betcher, who I just tweeted and copied you, Jason, who's a uh, wonderful educational technology leader there. And uh, I just said, hey, what do you think about this, Chris? What's your take? Um, I think that the Australian legislator legislators are sort of trying to fight the tide here. You know, I maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think they're going to be able to get a pay for click, a pay per click or whatever from from Facebook or Google. I mean, the web doesn't work that way. That's not the way hyperlinks work. That's a fundamental thing to say, I can link to you and you're not, I'm not going to need to pay you money. I mean, there's been questions and there's interesting things about deep links and people who've said, oh, you can't, you know, deep link and you have to go to the front page, whatever. But the hyperlink is really a basic element in, in, um, of the internet. And I think that, you know, we've, we've see this with, with Europe and there's all kinds of things. We saw this with ebooks and regulation is happening and it is going to happen. But this big push to say every news link is going to generate money for the company that produced it. Um, you know, it, it seems crazy. So Rupert Murdoch's, um, you know, media empire evidently is, is the one that has settled with Google and they've got some kind of financial agreement. Money certainly passes hands here. You know, even we were talking on the show a few weeks ago or whatever, a while back about Firefox and just how much money, um, you know, Firefox Mozilla made because they were continuing to have Google as their default search engine. I mean, there's there's lots of money being, you know, exchanging hands here. I will be interested to see if the EFF has, has chimed in on this and, you know, some some other, you know, Cory Doctorow and some other folks. um be interested to hear their take on this, but it just in general, it seems ridiculous. Like I just don't, I don't think that you can decide as a country, you know, you're, you're going to have to pay every one of our, every one of our news organizations anytime there's a link on your, on your website. I mean, what is this? You know, that's, that, that's, I think that's fruit loop Looney tunes. So, yeah. I, so I'm kind of wanting to say, yeah, good job. Facebook, you know, standing, standing up to this. Cause it sounds like Google has settled and is, is paying some money, at least to, to Rupert Murdoch, um, but Facebook's not. And this is the demonstration effect is what they're going for here, right? Because if this is what they do, I mean, what country? Facebook is the web, by the way, in a number of countries. I mean, and 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 I do not think this is good, but it has to do with contracts and cell phones and a whole bunch of things. But anyway, in certain countries, Facebook is the Internet. Uh, I don't yeah. think that's the case in... in uh, Australia, and I don't necessarily think that that's a good thing, but 
I'll actually use that as a segue to a rather weird article um, that I put under tech correction as well. I don't know if it fits exactly, but uh, Nevada bill would allow tech companies to create governments. This is from AP News on February 3rd, and I actually heard about this from listening to a Twit podcast recently. So basically, you know, Nevada has legalized gambling because it's not particularly a wonderful state in in lots of areas to say, hey, let's move to Nevada. So that was part of the idea was, hey, if we legalize gambling and other other uh, activities, um, you know, we can we can generate revenue and bring people to the state. Well, the governor has evidently suggested this. It hasn't become a bill, but it would allow a, a tech company that fits a certain profile and owns a certain number of acres to bypass county, municipal laws and all this, create schools and, and taxation and just do everything to form its own government. And in the, the Twit episode that was talking about this, they referenced, you know, how maybe it was in the early days of Google, there was some joking about that, you know, but it is not a joke that these tech companies and the amount of money that they have makes them more like nation states than companies. You know, the amount of power they have, the amount of money they have is absolutely astounding. And so I would be really surprised if this happens. But wow, Nevada has done some kind of outlandish outlier things before to try to to generate revenue. So is that going to is that going to work? I don't know. It seems like a desperate measure. But it also, I think, shows how it is important for us to start treating technology companies differently. Okay. The mom and pop, you know, dry cleaning shop down the the street or whatever is just so different than these enormous tech companies that wield power that is maybe more challenging to see in the same way that you can see, you know, factory, um, you know, factory buildings or, you know, acres of cars and, and huge car lots or whatever. It's, it, the, it's not the material um, capital or whatever that, that, that you can see in the same way, but it's just, it's astounding. So would you move to a Facebook uh, community, Jason, where uh, all you had to do was wear their smartwatch and maybe you could live there for free in exchange for all the data you give them. I don't know how that would work. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I've become way more acutely aware of, of the power of data in the last, you know, 12, 24 months. Uh, whereas, you know, like I used to say that I'm comfortable with sharing data if I could see a real benefit of it. I'm not entirely sure that that's still the case for me. And so while I understand people heading in that broader direction, I'm not entirely uh, convinced yet that, uh, um, that that's always the, always the best thing to do, you know? Yeah. Here's one more that I put in that same category that is just kind of wild. And uh, our daughter, Rachel, and I just rewatched uh, Ready Player One. If you have not seen that, it's actually, as most movies are, a lot better book than, than the movie. But the movie's still pretty good. Uh, this is a Wired article from two days ago on February 15th. Billionaires see VR, virtual reality, as a way to avoid radical social change. Now, the article is primarily quoting a Joe Rogan podcast interview with the former CEO of, I think it's Oculus, and um, he, uh, his name is Carmack, and 
he, um, John Carmack, former CTO of Oculus and Doom co-creator. And <laughs> he very callously talks about, well, everyone can't have a mansion. Everybody can't be Richard Branson and have, you know, their own island in the, in the Virgin Islands. Uh, but everybody might be able to just be in VR and live in whatever world they want to live in. And, um, yeah, wow. I think we need to not give up on improving the face to face, uh, face to face world for people. But that was kind of, I saw that article. My immediate train of thought was Ready Player One because that Ready Player One is a sort of not, a dystopian, you know, vision of the future. The movie moves the, her- the hero to Columbus, Ohio, where he actually is in Oklahoma City in the book. But anyway, um, like the vast majority of the world's population live in this virtual world that has been created and we're a ways away from that, but it's, it's interesting. And I don't know, they said plural billionaires and maybe they were just talking about this one guy. Have you been in, used an Oculus yet? I've got a couple of students that have, and I've been talking, if we get to go face to face next week, I was talking to some of them about maybe bringing their units and doing a demo. Have you had a chance to, to do some demo work or, or even just play in, in VR yet, Jason? Um, I, I, the hollow, the hollow was mm-hmm. the Microsoft one and I got an opportunity to utilize that one at, uh, ISTE San Antonio, I believe is where, uh, I took advantage of that one. And it was, you know, a 20 minute demo as part of an EDU thing. I, I know some folks have done the Oculus thing, um, and were super into uh, super into it. Thought it was super great. The thing I think is interesting is that you know the cheap VR plays, right? So things like uh, the the Google, you know, stick your phone in headset uh, that I I loved a lot. Like it was interesting. It just didn't seem to have the staying power. Where it seems like the Oculus plays that have obviously much more expensive. Uh, uh, hardware seem to be sticking around longer. And so while I, uh, you know, don't like it that, you know, they're, they're spending and they take a p- pretty decent hardware to run, I still think there's some good VR stuff to come. It's just probably not going to be the cheap, you know, stick a cell phone into, you know, Google Cardboard that we thought it was going to be. And then the article points out, I mean, it really is a, an issue of cost, right? It's so expensive now and the, and the processors, we, you know, we still are going to, Continue to see, even if it's not Moore's law, exactly different reasons how the the capabilities of devices are just going to continue to increase. But until they reach a price point, I saw in Walmart this week, I saw a 70 inch television for six hundred and eighty five dollars, 70 inch. You know, that's that's an example where consumer market has continued and will continue to push price points down. And until we see that in the VR marketplace, then I don't think we're going to see you know, anything that's going to be large impact, but it is a, it's a, it's pretty wild, pretty wild. I, one of the things I'd love to do is to see if our kids could design things, you know, in Minecraft or even in Tinkercad, but I probably in Minecraft, but then, you know, be able to go into the world that they've created and, and interact with it in a 3d environment. Um, we had, uh, I worked with one of our teachers a couple of years ago who did a Roman unit and she had her students design different Roman structures in Tinkercad. And then we were able to export them as like STLs or whatever, and then import them into Minecraft. And that was cool, but that wasn't 3d. So anyway, it's, if we start a gaming club at our school, um, shout out Zach Gilbert. Um, we might, do something like that. I think that would be phenomenally amazing to be in a virtual reality environment, but it's one that has been student created, not just created by, you know, super, uh, super smart, but, but professional 
tech people in Silicon Valley or somewhere else. Absolutely. Okay, Wes, uh, what, uh, anything else you want to get in tonight? As we see, we're quickly approaching the top of the hour. Um, let's see. You want to, you want to take the podcasting article? Yeah. Um, I, I, I like the kind of where this is going at some point. Uh, Wes and I keep talking about maybe, I mean, I, you know, you, you, you look at these statistics closer than I do. Um, monetizing this podcast, does it make a ton of sense in part because we do this to, you know, mostly to, to be able to interact with each other, uh, uh, once a week and talk through these issues and have an opportunity to read stuff that, that's impacting us professionally. And we know we have listeners out there because they, they, you know, they contact us back often and let us know that they're listening and they like the show. But it's super interesting because now that ever, you know, everyone seems to have kind of come on board the podcast train and there's all of these new providers and people are buying each other out and everyone's got a podcast play and yada, yada, yada. Um, iHeartMedia has purchased uh, Triton, Triton, Triton Digital for $230 million, and they are an advertising platform that has um, – uh, 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 most application in, in podcasting. They other, they do other live, uh, 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 pieces of audio broadcasting as well, right? Inserting ads dynamically into that content. But the reason why this article is interesting is not just because of the, of the, of the sales here and there. It's because there seems to be some, um, energy around big media companies, uh, like iHeartMedia in, in finding ways to insert more advertising into your listening over time. So people don't have to rely on MailChimp ads anymore. There could actually be a dynamic way to insert ads that are targeted to you, uh, but also could change over time and, and wouldn't be, you know, dated uh, based on when the time a podcast is published. I oftentimes will go listen to older episodes of podcasts that interest me uh, as part of this process. So, uh, you know, our, our, obviously our monetization of our podcast is an ongoing conversation, but there seems to be uh, additional platforms available for doing so. It's just super interesting that this is happening while at the same time there seems to be such pushback against uh, directed uh, advertising uh, towards users. Well, sir, I think we've reached the top of the hour. Well, uh, shall we do our Geeks of the Week? Let's do it. Okay, the one I wanted to share was a super interesting article that I saw in today's Verge. It's about how to get more uh, space in your Google account. Like uh, we've talked about in the past, that oh, go to the, eBay. Wasn't that your shortcut? Oh, well, yeah, yeah, that is the short to, to, to doing that. By the way, I did go on eBay as we were talking just to check, and you just type in Google and Unlimited. There's still hundreds of sellers of these accounts. Which and, I mean, and are those those are enterprise education customers that somehow have an admin that's doing that? Is that well the one the one that I did? Well, actually, I've, I've purchased two over time uh, because it's it's an interesting dollar. It's an investment. It's a one dollar investment to get a couple hours of, 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 of interesting stuff in my life. Um, but yeah, that, and, and, you know, for all I know, it could be the kid hired on work study that uh, has a little tech savvy is trying to make a little money on the side or, you know, part-time admin or an angry admin on their way out that still has admin. I mean, there's, there's literally thousands of scenarios here, right? This could be the case. But if you are stuck on a smaller account or you're purchasing, let's say it's, it's 100 gigs of space. I think I'm purchasing 200 gigs of space on my personal Google account every month. Um, you may find out that, you know, you have a lot of cruft in your Google Drive that you just don't need anymore, right? Um, and so, uh, uh, this article from The Verge, uh, talks about how to go find, uh, files, but 
the reason why I mentioned this article is because they have a link in there that opens up your entire file load by size and then you can rank them top to bottom. And as it turns out, I went onto my Google account when I saw this, my personal Google account, and I had uh, 37 300 gigabyte, uh, no, 300 megabyte, uh, 300 gigabyte, 300 megabyte sized files that were backups of text messages. I use a specific app to back up my text messages onto the cloud on the Android environment. Um, I'm now on iCloud uh, because I'm iOS guy again. So it, it's part of the iCloud account there, but these go back four years and I was able to uh, uh, delete uh, all but one of those. I kept the most recent one on there in case it's useful to me down the road, but these were huge files. So if you are starting to become more mindful of your cloud storage, this would be a way to do, to, to look at your different options um, uh, on Google in particular to find out what's taking up all of your storage. And the one note I'd make on that uh, with security in mind is remember to be really wary when you find links that are going to, and, I, and these look fine and I, I clicked on it. You know, I think it's, it's legit. This is a legit source. Yes. So be really wary when you get a link that is going to then try to authenticate uh, and, and log you in to do that. Because, you know, in addition to pixel, Trackers being a, you know, huge, huge problem. Um, phishing, you know, social engineering continuing to be. Um, my Geek of the Week is uh, Google, Doodle for Google. Uh, there's a week left to uh, have your students or whoever. I don't know if they, it might actually be age limited. Uh, but definitely, you know, kids in school can submit. Um, and the theme is I am stronger because the subtitle or the sub um, title of the heading is strength isn't only about how fast you can run or how many push-ups you can do. It's about also about the strength inside of you. And so I think that is a great prompt for our pandemic and the time that we're in. And Google Doodle for Google is pretty cool. Um, I've heard different stories through the years of, you know, teachers that have invited their students to submit. And anyway, they still have a week. And maybe you've got some kids who would like to do that. I'm going to share that with my students this week and encourage some of them who want to be more artistically inclined to think about putting in a submission. Awesome. Okay. Well, Wes, we are at the top of the hour and a little bit extra to boot. Where can people find you on the internet? I am W Fryer on Twitter and all of my sharing spaces are linked at westfriar.com slash after. How about you, Dr. Neifer? I am on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, www.ncce.org. And if you haven't done so already, uh, March 17th to 20th is NCC's 50th anniversary conference. Uh, special pricing ends at the end of February. So go to ncc.org slash conference 2021 to find out more. But this podcast is a little bit about NCC tonight, at least, but we are the EdTech Situation Room. You can find us anywhere finer podcasts are aggregated. I have yet to find a new podcast app I'm experimenting with where you can't find our podcast. But even if you can't, go to our website, edtechsr.com, search for us on YouTube or on Facebook. You'll always be able to get video copies of the podcast. If you want to check out our links, go to our website, edtechsr.com slash links, and you can check out everything we talk about, whether we get to it in the show or not. We are live every Wednesday night, except for once in a while when we go Thursday night or, or a bit little before after once in a while. We call it off for the week, but I would certainly encourage you to check us out live if you're available at 8 p.m. 
Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central Time, sometime in the middle of the night, UTC. We would love to have you live and hang out in our chat room. Uh, we hope you're staying safe with you and your families. We know it's cold out there and not just like burr, it's 35 cold, like really legit cold. Please stay safe out there. And we hope if you're in an area without power that you get power back soon and you're able to stay safe. Stay safe, stay savvy. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the EdTech Situation Room. Good night.